Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 128. I hope you're enjoying this fall season. As you know, from all the wanders that I've taken with you in the last couple of years, that fall is my favorite season. I love all the seasons for what they are, but there's just something about the fall. I say this often to the audience who listens to this podcast. When you get to the fall season of your life, it's like watching the second half of a football game. You look up at the scoreboard and ask yourself, what are you going to do with the time that is left? Because time is running out. That's true every moment of your life, starting from the very beginning. I don't say that to be morbid. I just say that to be mindful. And I say it often, as you all know. Are you going to just run out the clock because you're so far ahead? Or maybe just so far behind? Either way, are you going to keep driving down the field as if every point counts or not? Is there a driver in your own psyche? Or is it just sort of a mercy or sweet fatalism that accompanies the condition? You know, sometimes for people, it's more simple than that. It really is an odd time of life when people begin tabulating somewhat what has gone on up to that point in their life. And then they conjure up some mental yardstick that then produces a measure from which they conclude. They conclude on whether they are behind or not, and if there is any chance of catching up, or atoning for what has or has not gone on in life for them. And I'm not talking about anything particularly. It's different for everyone. Some people worry about more practical matters, whether they can afford to retire or not. And for them, it's about economics in this season of life. Indeed, for many. Others look up and ask more seminal questions. What have I done with my life so far? And what will be my legacy? Are my kids going to be okay? Is there something more I should do that I haven't done yet? Have I given enough back? Or has it been mostly about just me? Have I lived a good life? Am I a good person? Obviously, I'm not talking about the things you do at the very end to ready your affairs. These are the kind of questions you ask yourself when you've got some runway left. 
I'm just talking about the normal, everyday goings-on of life. Fall accentuates these feelings in me, makes me uber-mindful. The first cold breeze and the winds that kick up intermittently between the bluest of deep blue skies, the kind of skies that come this time of year and that you're not likely to see all year long, well, they just appear before your eyes. It's a dividend Mother Nature gives us at this time of the year, and just for a short period. You know, when I was a kid, I would often be at my mother's side as she was a crafter, so to speak, a very talented woman who came from a generation that valued the ability to make things more than they valued the ability to make money to buy things. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's who she was. And she was good, really full of goodness. And I know it provided a lifetime of richness for me and my brothers and our family and friends. It was a teaching that helped us to engage with the world, hands first, and it never prevented us from working with our brains and our minds just as hard, on tasks and adventures totally unrelated. You may not be surprised to hear me say that I am both happy and sad that I am in the third quarter. Thrilled that I got the privilege of being on the field in the first and the second quarters. I'm not sure what winning the game really means anymore in life. After all, it's just an analogy. And of course, it's different for all of us. But I do know that I'm going to stay at it in my own way for as long as I can. Years back, I had a disc replaced in my neck. I mentioned it before. It was right at C7. I was lucky, really, because the damage that was repaired, well, afterward, the good work that was done still afforded me significant mobility to move my head left and right. I don't jump off the back of my pickup truck anymore. I climb down. But I still do it with a semi-reckless abandon. I don't dive for tennis balls either at this point. My point is that some seasons have passed me by, but they're ones I've gladly traded for what I am now getting from life in the third quarter. Still, I wonder what to do exactly with what is left. This past week, I got a chance to speak to a very dear friend of mine. His name is Tony Crayer. Tony's older than I am, I don't know his exact age, but I'm going to guess and say he's in his late 70s. Tony would probably tell you he's in the fourth quarter. He's had some health problems lately. My friend Doug Cooper and I called him on the phone this week to say hello. Tony and Doug were both colleagues of mine at the firm of Ernst & Young many years ago. Both are retired partners at the firm now, and Doug spent his entire career, well over 35 years there. Back then, when I first started, the firm's name was still Ernst & Winnie. And when Tony got his start, the firm was still named Ernst & Ernst. I'll be back in South Florida shortly for the holidays and the winter, and Tony has already extended the invitation to get together again. I can't wait to do that. But a recent phone call has inspired me to say something on this podcast once again about this man that has been such an influence throughout my life and continues to be so, even today. A lot has changed over the years. These two men had more to do with hiring me right out of college than anyone else during the recruitment process. 
Doug eventually would be in my wedding party as a groomsman, and to this day, he remains a very dear friend, a very close friend. As I like to say, he is the best of DNA. Tony was a legend in the firm during the time that Doug and I were both there, and a legend later, too. He was one of the most courageous individuals I've ever seen in business. I would not possess the insight and leadership characteristics that I do today, whatever they have come to be, were it not for Tony. Hands down, he was the single most influential leader that I have worked for and with. He taught me what courage, personal courage, is in business and what it's really made of. He was not a poser. He was the real thing. That is rare in life and even more rare in business, I have come to find out. Later, for a brief time, I would work with Tony again at the Memorial Healthcare System in South Florida. He hired me there, too, and so he took a chance on me more than once in life, betting on this jockey, and he gave me great inspiration and instruction and friendship throughout those time frames. Tony was a Marine, and everything about him is still Marine-like, except his teddy bear underbelly of a personality. His love and caring for people has always been evident, even though a good bit of the time it was hiding underneath an extremely tough and resilient veneer. Truth be told, he more than gives a damn about all of us, even when things should be more about him than us. As a Marine, Tony learned to fight and be tough. And as a businessman, Tony was a leader, Marine style for sure. As a human, Tony is simply inspiring. Even so, still to this day. As Tony continues to battle his current health challenges, his Marine-like toughness has kept him up for the challenge of a lifetime. You still get them, you know. The challenges, I mean. You still get them whether you are in the first quarter or the fourth. They just come, generally, in a little bit different form. We love you, Tony. And thanks for continuing, as I like to say, continuing to stay at it. For continuing to show us how it's done in the fourth quarter. How it continues to be done throughout a lifetime. Today, this episode is dedicated to you, Mr. Crayer. Tip of the hat to you, sir. As we turn back to today's episode, I'll just say a few things about the episode we just finished up, episode 127. I hope you really enjoyed that one as I really enjoyed putting it together. Yes, it's a bit of a wander, this thing called Cuba, but the Cuban circumstance figures in so heavily into what is coming up in this whole quagmire of the mess surrounding the idea of a conspiracy related to the assassination, that we have to set the stage thoroughly enough. So, today we deal with a few of the key things that happened after the Havana Conference in 1946 and leading up to the point at which Fulgencio Batista takes back the government of Cuba via a coup d'etat in 1952, just when it became apparent that there was no other way for him to gain control as he was clearly losing the presidential election. It is precisely this decision and the dastardly deed to engage in a coup d'etat that seals the fate and ignites 
Castro's resolve to take back Cuba and send it in a different direction. The events that contribute to six more years of gestation related to the Mafia's plan of engagement in Cuba, those six years between 1946 and 1952, were largely driven by the practical realities of getting Batista repositioned more approximately back in Cuba, back in a position to take over the government once again and provide the muscle that the mafia would need on the island to effectuate their grand plan. And while corruption was present in the current administrations of that time in the Cuban government, the men in power were not wholly owned by the mafia. But in Batista, that would be the case. He would be a partner in crime to Meyer Lansky and the rest of the syndicate crew, and that would be enough to turn an island nation the size of the state of Kentucky into a mob paradise. It would be a hotbed of steamy pleasure plopped down right there in Havana, mostly, cradled on all sides by the social inequities that were simmering in the countryside of the island from centuries of leadership neglect. And they were ready to boil over. Batista and the syndicate simply lit the pilot on this gas stove. But once that pilot was lit, Castro would turn the gas up, and the pot would reach a boiling point, and indeed would boil over. And it would produce an epic transition to a communist model of government some 90 miles off the coast of the United States in a place that had come as close as you can come to being the 51st state in our union. And all of it preceding a dinner invitation to the granddaddy communist nation of them all, the Soviet Union. It was enough to make even the toughest of U.S. generals sick in the stomach. And what to do to prevent this menace from literally coming ashore in the United States? But we'll get to all of that soon enough. Today, it's just the last little bit of history between 1946 and 1952, and some additional facts about the conference itself that we didn't quite have the time to talk about in the last episode. Oh, and one more thing. Every November is a pretty special month when you talk about the story of the JFK assassination. As we all know, the assassination occurred on November 22, 1963. This year will be the 59th anniversary of the president's passing. Last year, right around November 22nd, I did a special edition episode about the president. It was a wander away from discussions about witnesses in Dealey Plaza and ideas of conspiracy. And it was a wander into just who this man was and what he meant to the country in the brief period of his existence and his continuing influence in the aftermath, influence on generations who have come to know him posthumously. Whether you were or are one who loved President Kennedy or not, appreciating the impact that his life and passing has had on our world and continues to have to this day is still a required course, so to speak. That is, a required course in understanding our republic. The recent midterm elections are over now, and there is still some mundane things to sort out, 
runoff elections, and the like. I am reminded, and I am reminding, that if we truly believe we are the greatest country in the world, then we should act and behave in that way, with humility for what has been bestowed upon us, and with strength and resolve for what you must do when handed such a mantle of responsibility. We should hold ourselves to a higher standard. But just like the story of Tony Crayer, the one that I shared with you earlier, let's do what Tony has already taught me and so many others. Let's avoid posing. Let's be the real thing. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 128 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. If you were listening carefully in the last episode, you know there was more to what happened between Lucky Luciano and Vito Genovese at the 1946 Havana Conference. Luciano's whereabouts became more widely known, and that would lead to the intervention by the authorities and, of course, ultimately, extradition from the island of Cuba. Luciano was stunned as the authorities began to make their moves on him, and it was clear that the United States government had been exerting significant influence on the Cuban government to remove Luciano from Cuba and send him packing back to Italy. There was one person he suspected more than any other, that is, when it came to tipping off the American authorities. It was Vito Genovese. Before Genovese left the island, it was, years later, reported by an attending member of the conference that Luciano and Genovese would engage one more time and it would lead to blows. At the height of this confrontation, Luciano was said to have beaten the hell out of Genovese. He broke three of his ribs and he knocked him around so thoroughly that he had to be taken to a place for rest on the island and he was there three days before he finally was ready to board a plane and go back to the United States. Luciano and Albert Anastasia themselves would take him back to the airplane for his flight home. And Luciano was said to have told him that if Genovese ever talked of the beating, that it would mean his own death. It was a parting gift from Luciano to his old partner in crime. It was a message that he was still in charge, even though he would soon be back on the shore of Italy. In our last episode, only a handful of guests at the Havana Conference were identified, but in reality, it was quite a delegation of syndicate members in attendance, and it's worth chronicling the inventory of those that were there that weekend. Let's take a minute to do that. The gangsters came from all over the United States. They came from Buffalo. They came from New York City, Chicago, Cleveland, New Jersey, Louisiana, and Florida. 
there were so many interesting characters. Of course, you have already been introduced to the hosts, Lucky Luciano and Meyer Little Man Lansky. And there was plenty of representation from the New York and New Jersey delegations of the Mafia there. There were at least 12 members from the New York and New Jersey delegations of the Mafia. I won't name them all, but some of the more important names are Frank the Prime Minister Costello. He was the Luciano family boss, and he was a commission member. There was Albert the Mad Hatter Anastasia, who was the Mangano family underboss and a future boss. And, of course, there was Vito, Don Vito Genovese, who was the Luciano family capo-regime and a future boss. There was Giuseppe Joe Adonis Dato, who was another Luciano family capo-regime. There was Anthony, Little Augie Paisano Carfano, another Luciano family capo-regime. There was Joseph Joe Bananas Bonanno, the Bonanno family boss and charter commission member. There was Giuseppe, the old man Profacci, who was the Profacci family boss, and he was also a Charter Commission member. There was another Profacci family underboss there, Giuseppe Faccio Magalaccio. He was a family underboss. As you might expect, the Chicago delegation was represented by Sam Giancana. Charles Trigger Happy Fischetti was also there. He was the Chicago Outfit Conciliary. And Anthony Joe Batters Accardo. He was another Chicago Outfit boss, and he was a commission member himself. From the Buffalo delegation, you had Stefano, the Undertaker, Magadino. He was the Buffalo family crime boss, and he was also a charter member of the commission. From New Orleans, you had Carlos, little man, Marcello. He was obviously the New Orleans family boss, although some mob historians might dispute what his exact position was at that very moment in time. From the Tampa delegation, you had Santa, Luis Santos, Traficante Jr. He was the Tampa family capo regime, and he had moved to Havana in 1946 to oversee La Cosa Nostra and Tampa family casino and business interests, and he was, of course, the future Tampa family boss. There were members from the Jewish syndicate delegation there as well, too. Abner Longies Wilman, Morris Modalitz, who was the Cleveland syndicate boss. And he was a casino front man at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas. Joe Doc Stotcher was also a New Jersey Jewish syndicate boss, and he was a casino front man at the Sands in Las Vegas. And you had Philip Dandy Phil Castle, who was another Jewish syndicate boss. He handled Frank Costello's Louisiana slot operations and other matters at the Tropicana Casino, and he was also a Las Vegas partner. With regards to their involvement in the JFK assassination discussion, we'll spend more time talking about Santos Traficante and Carlos Marcello and Sam Giancana, and we'll do that in upcoming episodes dedicated to their backgrounds particularly. Traficante spoke fluent Spanish, and his father had been operating on the island in a big way since the 1920s. He was the youngest member of the syndicate representation present at the 1946 Havana Conference, and he also had, from a crime family perspective, the longest history on the island. Now, let's pivot back to one of the most important topics of the Havana Conference, and that was the narcotics trade. I may have given the impression in the last episode that Luciano was involved, but was not in favor of expanding his own involvement in the trade. 
There are varying views on this in the research related to the conference. Some history says exactly the opposite, that Luciano at the conference laid out an extensive plan for the narcotics trade. Either way, the last episode did not necessarily portray the extensive and continuing involvement that Luciano had in the narcotics trade, and even more so after his quest to remain on the island was essentially thwarted by the authorities. One could easily conjecture that for Luciano, it was no longer the level of motivation, if there ever was any, to steer clear of the narcotics trade, especially if he was now prevented from returning to Cuba and the U.S. and perhaps even the rest of the Western Hemisphere. So, there are a few things about the narcotics trade that are significant, particularly as it relates to the JFK assassination. Those that have studied the topic know that there are at least one set of theories that involve members of the Corsican mob as assassins present and taking the shots that day in Dallas in Dealey Plaza. To some folks, this might sound like legend, but the connection with and between the American mafia and those characters is firmly entrenched in the enhanced syndicate and network that Luciano put together related to the family's narcotics trade. It's worth taking another couple of minutes to discuss all this. There are some who say that it was a long-standing myth that there was a refusal by Luciano and Cosa Nostra to deal in narcotics. Those same folks say that, in reality, only a few bosses such as Frank Costello and the other bosses who controlled lucrative gambling empires opposed narcotics. The anti-drug faction believed that the Cosa Nostra did not need narcotics profits, that narcotics brought unwanted law enforcement and media attention, and that the general public considered it to be a very harmful activity, unlike gambling. The pro-drug faction said that narcotics were far more profitable than any other illegal activity. Furthermore, if the Cosa Nostra ignored the drug trade, other criminal organizations would jump in and eventually diminish the Cosa Nostra's power and influence. Luciano himself had a long involvement in the drug trade, starting as a small-time street dealer in the late 1910s. In 1928, after the murder of Arnold the Big Bankroll Rothstein, Luciano and Louis Lepke Buckalter took over Rothstein's large drug importation operation. Since the 1920s, the Cosa Nostra had been involved in drug importation, including heroin, cocaine, and marijuana, into North America. In the 1930s, the organization started transporting narcotics from the East Asia Golden Triangle and also from South America. And these shipments went to Cuba and then into Florida. The American mob had a longtime association with the government of Cuba concerning gambling interests such as casinos, along with all their other legitimate business investments on the Caribbean island. This put them in a position to use their political and underworld connections to make Cuba one of their narcotics importation layovers or smuggling points where the drugs could be stored. In 
As we've mentioned before, these drugs were then placed on sea vessels before they continued on to Canada and the United States, sometimes via Montreal and certainly often through Florida, among the ports used by Luciano's associates. With Luciano's deportation to Italy, he now had the opportunity to import heroin from North Africa via Italy and then eventually through Cuba and into the U.S. and Canada. Luciano made connections with some of the biggest bosses in Sicily, including Don Colagero Carlo Vizzini of Villaba, who assisted the Allies' invasion of Sicily and had the greatest political connections of all the Sicilian bosses. There were other elements that were relevant, too. At that time, large-scale heroin manufacturing in Italy was legal, and the Dons had access to a powerful boss in Palermo, Don Pasquale Ania, who had connections to legitimate pharmaceutical companies that were manufacturing high-grade heroin. During the Havana Conference, Luciano detailed the proposed drug network to the bosses, After arriving in Cuba from North Africa, the mob would ship the narcotics to the U.S. ports that it controlled, primarily New York City, New Orleans, and Tampa. The narcotics shipped to the New York docks would be overseen by the Luciano crime family. Later, that would be the Genovese and the Mangano crime families. And later, that would turn into the Gambino crime family. In New Orleans, the operation would be overseen by the Marcello crime family, led by Carlos Littleman Marcello. In Tampa, the narcotics shipments would be overseen by the Traficante crime family, led by Santo Traficante Jr. It was said that at the Havana Convention, the delegates voted to approve this plan. Luciano would build a massive drug organization spanning Italy and America. I won't go into the details of all the men who participated in the network. You can find more about that easily if you look on the web. But the network was incredibly extensive. And even with all the growing animosity between Lucky Luciano and Don Vito Genovese, he couldn't leave his old associate out of the plan. Genovese had his own group of distributors. And that included a colorful group of characters and one that you've heard in a prior episode, including Joseph Jocago Valachi. And they were all associated with the Papilia Agachi network of the Magadino crime family of Buffalo. At first, the mafia's operation was one of many individual operations connected or affiliated to the French Corsican mob or Union Corse, the famous French connection heroin distribution ring. By the late 1950s, the Sicilians and Americans organized a joint U.S. and Sicilian La Cosa Nostra narcotics operation that would eventually grow into one of the largest global narcotics operations ever. This famous joint U.S.-Sicilian operation came to be known as the Pizza Connection, and it was cemented between the two mafia organizations at the famous Mafia Summit held at the Grand Hotel de Palms in Palermo, Sicily, in October 1957. Of course, 
The main drug imported by Luciano's network at the time was heroin, and the main sources were French underworld clans that made up the core of the Union Course Syndicate, or French mob. The Corsican clan was headed by a group of powerful bosses. Antoine D'Agostino, Jean-Baptiste Croce, and Paul Mondolini, while the Marseille clan was made up of four groups. These powerful groups in two clans would rule the French underworld from the late 1940s to the late 1960s, and they would supply Luciano and his mafia allies with large amounts of heroin until the heroin ring known as the French Connection started to crumble in 1972 with the arrest of one of its biggest bosses, August Joseph Record. The Luciano narcotics empire continued to grow and prosper with the help of his U.S. associates. Many of Luciano's partners in the narcotics empire were Havana Conference delegates, such as Joseph the Old Man Profaci, who was once the biggest importer of olive oil and tomato paste in the United States, and he quietly used his food importation business to smuggle narcotics for decades. Without a doubt, one of the architects of the American heroin network and a partner of Luciano's is well-known and powerful New York Mafia boss, Joseph Joe Bananas Bonanno. He was the patriarch of the Bonanno crime family, who, along with the assistance of his own cousin, Buffalo crime family boss Stefano the Undertaker Magadino, led the American Mafia's expansion into Canada. Bonanno's and Magadino's crime families in New York and Buffalo opened up Montreal and Toronto in the 1950s as satellite groups or individual operations connected with the famous French Connection. But eventually, these satellite groups would grow into their own powerful crime families and would control massive narcotics distribution networks that still operate even today. It is all of these very facts taken together that help to do away with the myth that the mob was not substantially involved in the importation of narcotics. Now, for our final postscript to the conference, let's pivot back to Cuba and to Meyer Lansky. Meyer was not a ladies' man, and he wasn't necessarily known as the best-looking guy, but like so many men of his day, he was almost always impeccably dressed, and he was known as a gentleman. And of course, he had a lot of money. Lansky had made his way to South Florida, and during this entire period of incubation of the Cuban plan, he had begun to cultivate a base of gambling right in Broward County, Florida. As I've mentioned before, Broward County is just north of Dade County, and Dade County is where Miami is located. Broward is where the city of Fort Lauderdale resides as well. In between Fort Lauderdale and Miami are a series of smaller cities and towns, and one of them that sprang up early and had mafia elements residing there was Hollandale. Interestingly enough, my parents came, moved, to Hollandale for a short period in 1946 from Ohio. There was a hurricane that year, and conditions were so difficult, they moved back. Later, they would come back to South Florida in 1961. 
The city of Hollandale is located just inside Broward County before you get into Dade County. Lansky operated one of his three carpet joints in Hollandale. Carpet joints, as they were known then, were local gambling establishments. There were three in Broward at the time. One of them was named the Colonial Inn. The second establishment was known as the Plantation. And the third was called Club Bohem. As we have mentioned in earlier episodes, Lansky was hands-on at the clubs, along with his brother Jake and quite involved personally. You would often find him at the end of a night counting the drop at one of the clubs, which is a term used to describe the night's cash intake or winnings for the house. A common term in the gambling business is the handle, which is the amount of cash necessary to meet daily expenses of the club. Anything over the handle amount was split between Lansky and his partners in the club. And of course, some of it was used for the fix. If you've never heard of the term the fix, that's an underworld term that describes payoffs to high-ranking law enforcement officials and perhaps selected government legislators. And that's what makes it possible for people to operate these kind of illegal establishments without harassment from the authorities. That's just how it worked in those days. When I was in my 30s, I worked not too far from Hollandale, not too far from where Lansky's gambling establishments apparently were. Not that I knew it at that time, of course, and they were gone by then, but it's still fascinating and interesting to learn about it now. And look back at your own history and understand that you were right there in the backyard of something so large in the history of the mafia. And yet it was something kept relatively secret and unknown to the general public. Lansky would hone his incredibly capable underworld skill sets at these locations in Broward. It would prove to be quite helpful when he finally got a chance to make it to Havana and to Vegas and do it there on such a grander scale. As I said, people who knew Lansky said he was all business all the time. And he wasn't a ladies' man, really. But around the time of the Havana Conference, things weren't going well between he and his current wife. And he already had plans to make a pivot. In the fall of 1948, Lansky fell in love with a manicurist and a divorcee named Thelma Teddy Schwartz. And in December 1948, just four months after she met Meyer, Meyer and Teddy flew to Cuba to get married. And guess who was in attendance at the wedding in Cuba? That's right, Fulgencio Batista. It was an important moment because more than a decade before, Lansky had put his eye on Batista and his money on him too. And he had been patiently and silently waiting for that investment to pay off. But the world of gangsternomics is a complicated place, and there were things like a Great Depression, the general instability of Cuba, and of course, there was that little thing called the Second World War. All of these events got in the way of executing on this grand plan, but now it was time. These two men had some things in common, too, as well. Neither of them were well-educated formally from school, but each of them had a love for knowledge, and they were brilliant and brilliantly capable in their patently corrupt sort of way. 
Batista became a lover of books and accumulated over his lifetime an amazingly large library. I wouldn't call him a Thomas Jefferson type, but there was a moment in his life where he ended up having amassed the largest private library of books on the island of Cuba. Perhaps it was just an example of graft put to work in an oddly benign way. Each of them would have a different social path, too, that they would take in life. Batista would attempt to remain connected to the common man, which is an essential element to becoming a popular and successful politician. Lansky, on the other hand, shunned the limelight, and he would have liked to have been viewed as a legitimate businessman, someone like perhaps a Joe Kennedy. And yet, at the end of the day, in the end, he was just seen as a common criminal. He was never able to rise above that, although for a time he was local royalty in places like Vegas and especially Havana. And of course, the ultimate irony is that while Batista had a humble upbringing and attempted to maintain a connection to the common people for political purposes, in the end, for Batista, it was all about protecting the interests of those who probably didn't need such protection. The upper classes of human society, wealthy classes including the elite on the island and those operating there from abroad, especially U.S. industrialists. Those who controlled the wealth on the island through the process that had matriculated for the last 100 years or more in Cuba. A domination and use of the island's natural resources and assets for concentrated private gain. Perhaps you could say it was the logical and inevitable extension of exploitation that had gone on since Columbus first set foot on the island. As I've said before in earlier episodes, the military was the ultimate source of social control in Cuba during that time frame. But in 1948, Batista announced that he was re-entering the political fray. There is no doubt that trying to maintain influence in Cuba while he was in Daytona Beach, Florida, was a suboptimal circumstance for Batista, and it was also seen that same way by others, particularly from Lansky's perspective. For a man who has tasted power and for a man who wants more of it, the offshore circumstance of Batista was not enough. And plans to change that circumstance were kicked into high gear by the reconnection with Lansky in their 1948 rendezvous at Lansky's wedding. Flatly put, Lansky needed Batista back in power in Cuba. The political administrations of Ramon Grau San Martin and his successor Carlos Prio Sacaris were every bit as corrupt as every previous Cuban presidency, but in the eyes of many, they did not share Batista's visionary qualities when it came to casino gambling. This was problematic because the betting money was that Cuba was about to enter a post-war boom in tourism that might have been as big as what happened to Cuba in the roaring 1920s. And these men, currently in charge in Cuba, were not capable of leading it. So, Batista would set out to make his way back to Cuba and re-enter the direct fray of Cuban politics. <laughs> Only there was a catch to this whole thing. Cuban law prohibited Batista from again running for president until he had first, at least, served one term in a lower office. That law forced Batista 
to make a first move. He would make his way to a rural province on the island's central coast, and he would become a senator in the province of Las Villas. Yes, Batista would have to move back to Cuba, and so he did. He would settle himself in an expansive and grand mansion located in an area called Kukain, which was a rural province on the island's central coast, and it was actually on the outskirts of Havana. There he would live for the next decade. Arriving back in Cuba, Batista spent the next four years patiently and methodically positioning himself to run for president. The plan was simple. He would once again become the head of the Cuban government and simultaneously fulfill the dream that he and Lansky had shaken hands on almost a generation before. It would be the pinnacle of his power and the culmination of a lifetime of positioning, and it would make Havana the destination of choice in the Western Hemisphere for anything a tourist of any kind might possibly desire. It would make him even richer beyond his wildest dreams and, of course, more powerful, too, beyond his wildest dreams as well. Together, Lansky and Batista would turn Havana into the Monte Carlo of the Caribbean. It was about to happen. Ironically, the work that Batista did to reform the Constitution in 1940 diminished the power of the military. This had the unintended effect of increasing the random violence that began to develop within and amongst various political groups and factions and it began to invade the social fabric across the entirety of Cuba. Particularly right after World War II, the fact is that unrestrained violence and individual gangs and related violence were emerging as a common issue in Cuba at a rate not seen in more than a generation. Ordinary people were arming themselves in light of that violence, including people who normally would not arm themselves with guns. And they were from many walks of society. It's been said that newspaper editors, student activists, and even political operatives found themselves carrying guns for protection. At one point, Carlos Prio, who was the then-elected president, introduced a program to openly purchase guns back from the militants who were inciting this terror tactic. And he did it in order to reduce the violence. You can imagine that this became a controversial approach and one that, in the end, failed miserably as well. Not surprisingly, there were men who were emerging in Cuba in the 1940s during this period of transitioning cultural circumstance and political environment, men who understood the intellectual arguments of social change and the practical elements of using violence to effectuate just that. Simply put, they understood the seeds of revolution. And in their minds, these elements were essential to making the pivot out of the social decay and abyss that Cuba seemed to be falling into once again and from their perspective. And at this moment in 1948, a young student radical, a young lawyer-to-be, bursts onto the political scene. His name is Fidel Castro. More to come on this man soon enough, 
but it's important to know that his story really starts to get legs in the late 1940s in Cuba as the gangsterismo political culture, that's what it began to be labeled at that moment, began to assemble itself in the period commencing immediately after World War II and concomitant with the related decline in military power that came from implementing the new constitution. Really, implementing the new constitution without fully eradicating the island of all the graft and corruption that had existed for so long, and that had contributed to a terribly lopsided economic and social order of haves and have-nots. A story so often repeated over the years all over the Caribbean and in other developing countries as well, sadly predictable to those who study the history of developing nations in the 19th and 20th and 21st centuries, really since the period of the Enlightenment, and perhaps really in some sense the same as other developing nations over the course of all human history. Join us in the next episode as we begin the pivot to those seminal moments in 1952 when Fulgencio Bautista seizes the government and there is a permanent inflection point inside of Cuba. Thank you for listening to episode 128 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.